Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the green. And as usual, you know, it's the middle of the week. And so middle of the week, it's usually, it's, it's very busy. It's a very busy news mm. day. Today's no different, certainly. And as we were getting ready for the show, Michelle, I'm, I'm sure you uh, noticed the same thing. It was just one news notification on my phone after the other. Um, we were going to talk anyway about Donald Trump and the fact that uh, he had finally agreed, apparently, uh, to testify in one of these lawsuits, or at least to provide a deposition in one of these lawsuits uh, in New York, the one that New York Attorney General Letitia James had sort of fought him in court to force him to testify. Then um, I got a push notification about an hour ago saying that um, he just pled the fifth. He sat up there and didn't answer a single question. He pled the fifth, which is the smart thing to do. God knows I've done it, but this is the same Donald Trump who four years ago said only guilty people plead the fifth. Right. If you recall that. What do you make of this? Do you think, uh, you know, there are so many different legal actions being taken against him right now. I don't know how the guy even keeps it all straight. But what do you think about this uh, this state lawsuit? I mean, I was going to say anybody, everybody wants law and order until law and order comes for them. Right. I mean, you have. Isn't that the truth? Paul Gosar yesterday talking about uh, dismantling the FBI brown shirts, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene defund the FBI. I mean, go for it. Right. But again, like I'm not going to lose any sleep is nothing new. And, you know, uh, you don't have anything to worry about if you're not guilty is all well and good until it's your personal finances that are being investigated or your allies online information that's being snooped around. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's unsurprising. And, uh, you know, this sort of hypocrisy is par for the course. It is funny that just yesterday we were talking about, you know, we were wondering what is going on with these different lawsuits in New York. We hadn't heard anything about you said that just yesterday. We willed it into being, John. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this New York suit is is, I think this is the one against the Trump organization as an organization where they're alleged to have falsified um, loan applications where they they increased the assessments of properties that they own. Isn't this what forced the president of the Trump organization to resign? And then there was talk that he would flip and he'd testify against Donald Trump. And then we never heard anything about the guy again. The same one. And I do think I remember there. I don't know. I think I remember there being expectations that he was going to say much worse things than he actually said. But I don't I don't completely remember. But, yeah, this is the one that I think I think Ivanka and John Jr. have already been deposed. Uh, Certainly, Letitia James, the New York attorney general, was seeking to depose them in this case. So, yeah, it's against Trump. Trump organization and two of his children, I guess, Eric, Eric managed to keep himself out of this particular swamp. Uh, They say he's the dumb Trump. I mean, Trump had gone to court for uh, to prevent himself from having to be questioned under oath. Right. Yeah. The reason this is happening is because that case finally lost its appeal. Um, But Trump had said, you know, his argument was that the investigation was politically motivated and also that Letitia James would improperly share information she got from this subpoena with the Manhattan DA, who is also conducting a criminal investigation. Yes. 
into sort of similar matters. You know, and the thing about these state um, investigations, too, Donald Trump is not immune from the fallout uh, from state investigations. Were he to be accused of a federal crime like uh, like this uh, misuse of classified information allegation, certainly Joe Biden or any other president could elect to pardon him. But with state charges, he's he's on his own. This is going to be potentially tough. And I mean, you know, Donald Trump consistently raises the possibility that these are politically motivated investigations. Yeah. And I think that that is a tricky question, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think they probably are. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, I, I think if you asked me to bet money on it, I would absolutely bet that the Trump organization used fraudulent and misleading asset valuations to get loans, insurance and tax deductions. hundred percent. I would make that bet. If you ask me to bet whether, you know, somehow we could uh, wave a magic wand and find out the real truth here. uh, If this investigation would be happening, if Donald Trump had not run for office and won and might not run again, I do not know if I'd make that bet. Right. Because I do feel like the Trump organization, if it is doing this stuff that I think it's very likely it has been, it's probably been doing it for a long time. Sure. And so, you know, I mean, whatever, keep continue the investigation. I just wish it didn't take, you know, a run for office to motivate some of these authority figures to go after some of these um, alleged financial criminals. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Another thing that we got right yesterday was we had a very short conversation about this serial killer in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In just 24 hours, Michelle, this case took the most bizarre, unexpected turn. Um, What the police told us yesterday was that they believed there was a serial killer loose in Albuquerque. He was targeting Muslim men. Um, He had killed four um, and uh, they were warning uh, Muslims to be, you know, on the lookout, be aware of your surroundings, the, all the normal things that the cops say. Well, last night, much to everybody's surprise, the cops made an arrest. And apparently the man has already confessed. The crazy thing is that he's Muslim. And the reason why he was going out there and killing Muslims is that. He is a Shia Muslim. He was killing Sunni Muslims because his daughter has been dating a Sunni. And because her daughter's boyfriend is of a different sect, that was enough to push this guy over the edge. And he was just randomly driving around uh, uh, Albuquerque, shooting people who looked like South Asians. So they've charged him with Two murders already, and they say that he's confessed to all four. I feel like I heard this morning, I think it was NPR doing a uh, doing a bit on this, saying that he'd already been like he had once been expelled from the I forget what it's called. It's like the Muslim organization of Albuquerque or, or New Mexico oh. or whatever, because he'd been accused of slashing somebody's tires. Oh, my. Yeah. So I wasn't I hadn't been caught up on that. This was totally random. I thought that these were maybe people who we had some kind of beef with or who were somehow connected to this uh, this marriage that he didn't approve of. But yeah, pretty grim, pretty sad. It it really is sad. Uh, you know, when I was stationed in Pakistan, uh, there was this ongoing thing where where Sunni Muslims were constantly targeting Shias. 
And so every time there was a, a holy day, and, and the Shias have all kinds of holy days that the Sunnis don't have, um, because the Shias have saints. They, you know, people call the Shias the Catholics of the Muslim world because they have a religious hierarchy. They have imams and hojatol islams and ayatollahs and grand ayatollahs like the Orthodox and the Catholics have priests and bishops and archbishops and, you know, and what have you. So um, they commemorate the, the death anniversaries of various Shia saints and the Sunnis don't have saints. And so every time it seemed that there was some religious commemoration in a Shia mosque, somebody would throw grenades in there or they would open fire on worshipers as they were coming out of the mosque after prayers. It was one massacre after the other. It's so unusual for a Shia to go after a Sunni because they're sort of an oppressed minority. Um, I, I've been shocked by this uh, by this Albuquerque thing. I, I've never seen anything like it. Really fascinating. So you um, were mentioning something. I'm sorry, please go right ahead. Oh, I was just going to talk about this vice story that's come out about ah. a case that you talked about yesterday with Kim Keenan. Is that what you were going for? Yeah, I was going to ask if you would mention it. Yeah, uh, vice has a story showing um, Facebook's role in uh, helping to helping investigators look into this mother and her 17-year-old daughter who are accused of performing a medical abortion at home after Nebraska's 20-week cutoff. Um, they've been charged with felonies and misdemeanors, and the way the story plays out is pretty horrifying. Um, first, I mean, it's like, before you even get to the abortion, it's already pretty unsettling yeah, to consider, right? So the, the Lincoln Journal star, I think, was the first to report this and says that a police detective launched his investigation in late April into these two people chasing a tip that the daughter, Celeste Burgess, had miscarried and that she and her mother had buried the body, which is like, I mean, even if, if that happened, I don't know, man, like the idea of like zealously chasing down that tip so you can punish these people in these circumstances, uh, it doesn't sit very well. Um, so they were originally investigated over improperly disposing of this stillborn child. The detective went and got Celeste's medical records and found out that she had been 23 weeks pregnant at the time. That is three weeks past Nebraska's cutoff. He then served a search warrant on Facebook to get access to Celeste and her mother's accounts. And that's how he got this evidence that suggested this was a medical abortion and not a miscarriage and stillbirth. And so Facebook is defending itself by saying that none of the warrants it received were about seeking an abortion, that the warrants were about investigating the treatment of the remains of a stillborn infant. But the problem is, I can see lots of different ways you could write warrants about seeking information Absolutely. about the mistreatment of fetal remains uh, without actually saying you're looking for an abortion and get access to this very information. And so it just shows, you know, shows how zealous some authorities are going to be in hunting down women who have had or who are seeking abortions. And it shows how unsafe communications about this topic are going to be over right. social media. So I think this should be really chilling. And, you know, also like, I don't want to ignore the fact that there are some aspects of these conversations that you can see in these court documents that are not particularly, you know, sympathetic, right? And that seem a little bit cold. But I guarantee you, 
uh, pretty soon someone the cops are hunting is someone who you are going to find sympathy with, right? And who's going to be sympathetic to your particular sensibilities. And then you'll have wished that these two women uh, were protected as well. So, Absolutely yeah, I mean, true. it seems like all of this conversation over the role social media is going to play in in helping these states uh, hunt down and prosecute women for getting this health care is not been overblown. It's already happening. You know, we we were talking yesterday with Kim Keenan about the possibility that there are going to be knocks on people's doors and it's going to be two detectives who tell people we're here to investigate your miscarriage. Uh, You know, we were thinking months ago that this, you know, might be some kind of draconian uh, uh, bad dream. And in fact, it's it's, you know, what's happening today. You know, just wait. And Facebook also said, like, hey, uh, we were under a gag order. We couldn't say anything about it. Uh, now that gag's been lifted so we can talk about it. I, you know, again, so you don't have any idea what's happening. No. Definitely means don't talk about this stuff on social media, you know. Yeah, my God, don't talk about it at all. It can only get worse for you. We have a little uh, shift in trends here, John. I don't know if you caught this, if you're going to talk about it later, but did you see there's a tiny bit of good news for President Biden today? I did. Actually, you know, I, I check Real Clear Politics uh, polls page every day, and uh, there's been a definite uptick for Joe Biden. Yeah, up to a whopping 40% approval rating. Disapproval rating fell to 55%. Yes, that is a new Reuters-Ipsos poll released this morning. 40% approve, 55% disapprove. Now, there are two other polls that were released this morning, too. Politico Morning Consult, which is one of the very reliable ones, like Reuters-Ipsos. It has Biden 39, approve, and disapprove 59. You can't win re-election when 59% of voters think you, you suck. Um, There was also a Rasmussen poll that was released this morning. Rasmussen tends to be a little bit skewed toward Democrats, and it has uh, Biden at approve 45 and disapprove 54. Now, a couple of the other polls that nobody seems to be talking about uh, are the generic congressional polls. And I think these are very important because, remember, everybody's been talking about a a red wave in, in Congress. And that the Republicans are going to they're definitely going to take the House and and the the geniuses, the political geniuses are telling us they're they're likely to take the Senate. I, I disagree with that. But the latest polls now show a switch in these generic, you know, a congressional Democrat versus a congressional Republican. So Politico Morning Consult has Democrats by one Rasmussen, which is this is very strange to me, has Republicans by three. The Economist has Democrats by five. So I think as we inch our way closer to midterm elections, this is going to be very, very close. And it's going to it's going to depend on two things. Number one, if Joe Biden can keep up with this string of of uh, legislative wins. And number two, turnout. It's going to all rely on turnout. Hey, John, let's tell people what we're going to be talking about before we take this break. I think we're going to be talking uh, more politics. I want to ask about a story that I heard this morning about how um, the companies that do credit scores are going to start ignoring medical debt. Yeah, that's exciting. Which sounds good, but I think points to some very, very bad things happening in our economy and our society. 
Uh, we're going to talk about the election that is coming up in Brazil. We're going to talk about some state and local solutions to our housing crunch that maybe, uh, you know, are, are bringing some good news. We are going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine, including uh, what might be, well, including a, a mysterious explosion at a uh, munitions storage area in Crimea. Is that the story that people are speculating could mean Ukraine has slightly longer range weapons than um, than they have before? I don't know about that. We're going to talk about shipments restarting in the Black Sea. Am I missing anything here, John? No, I think you've got it. We've got a lot on the menu. Yeah. Oh, and housing. Let's go ahead and take a quick break. We're going to come back and start with Ukraine and all the good foreign policy stories out today. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we will be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive began yesterday with an attack in Crimea. Thirteen rockets hit a Russian base there, and while Ukrainian authorities this morning were careful not to claim credit, President Zelensky said that Ukraine would soon retake Crimea and that the area would be Ukrainian forever. Meanwhile, both Ukrainian and Russian forces launched attacks near each other's nuclear power plants, raising concerns that an accidental hit could cause a catastrophe. And things are turning ugly for the conservative pro-American government of Greece. Prime Minister Konstantin Mitsotakis gave a nationally televised address two days ago to apologize to the leader of the country's Socialist Party after revelations that the Greek National Intelligence Service had tapped his phone. We reported on that yesterday. But today, the country's president, Katarina Sakalaropoulou, called the parliament back into session. This is a highly unusual move at the height of the summer holidays and called for a comprehensive investigation. Prime Minister Mitsotakis has said that he had no idea that the incident had taken place until he saw it in the news. But now the scandal brings his pro-U.S. government to the brink of collapse, something that rival Turkey is salivating over. We're joined by Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, a global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst here in Washington, D.C. He's the host of Geopolitics and Conflict. That's a show on TYT. His latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order. David, always happy to have you. Welcome back. A pleasure to be with you, John and Michelle. We're very glad uh, that you could uh, join us. It's um, Let's start with this apparent offensive in Crimea. This, this morning, President Zelensky and his closest aides were very careful to not say that this was a Russian attack on a, I'm sorry, a Ukrainian attack on a Russian base. But by later in the day... It's like they couldn't contain themselves. And the Ukrainian defense minister finally came out and said that this was an attack by Ukrainian special forces. It seems that they um, used longer range rockets than anyone had previously disclosed that the Ukrainians had access to. These, these are likely American rockets. What do you think we should take from this? Can the Ukrainians keep up an offensive against the Russians in a place like Crimea? 
Well, first of all, John, could it be that the whole op took place without the knowledge? Uh-huh. <laughs> but they were a little bit sure. That, that would, because why would I take the Ukrainian Air Force statements out of face value? Uh, this is not about whether they hit 10 Russian aircrafts or one. This is about the type of weapons used, that they was not in their possession to begin with, which tells me personally, as an analyst, I am saying, <laughs> I'm seeing... Okay, there is the hidden hand behind the scenes that might have been coordinating all this. And again, it's not the issue about whether it's one aircraft being targeted or 10 or 100, whatever. Right. It's the, the nature of the weapons that have been used. But here is the thing. The idea that uh, the uh, Zelensky is saying that he's about to liberate Ukraine, uh, uh, liberate Crimea, uh, to me, it's, uh, he's a delusional. He's a delusional for one fact, one reason and one reason only. Does not understand the strategic importance of, of Crimea to Russia and historical aspects of it. So, because somebody needs to tell him that, do you realize that Russia will never give Crimea up? I mean, are you out of your mind to think that the Russian Black Sea, uh, the fleet that is its main base is uh, in, in Sevastopol, is too strategically important to Russia. And there is no way they're going to give that up. But here is the hidden thing about all this as to why all of a sudden we're hearing this statement. is because there are preparations as we speak. They are underway now in the Ukrainian provinces of uh, Zaporozhye and Kherson, which have been under the control of the Russian forces for months. And the reason being, because they are now organizing a referendum that could lead either to the separation from the new entity or their, their uh, uh, sort of uh, annexation of Russia. In other words, they will be part of Russia the same way as Crimea. Do you think, David, that the Ukrainians have the ability to fight a two-front war, one in Crimea and one in Donbass, with what they have? They've, they've got... Uh, they're going to get another billion dollars in the next week or two uh, from Congress, but but they they've got they've got loads of weapons and ammunition and missiles and rockets. But what about manpower, wherewithal, the stamina to keep up a long term fight? Can they can they actually do this on two fronts? No, no, they won't be. They are they they are not in a position to to do that from both aspects, from a manpower per se, and from the the capabilities aspects of it. This is why this recent attack on the base in 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 Crimea uh, they didn't want to say anything about it because probably, as I said earlier, they didn't know. So, and for them to say our special ops doing this and doing that. No, they don't have those kind of capabilities. Let alone now, the economy inside Ukraine is devastating. We don't hear much yeah. about it. But you're looking at it. I was talking to some individuals in Poland, and, and uh, the info that I'm getting is kind of like, wait a minute, why aren't we hearing about all this here? And that is very problematic for them to be saying, yeah, we're going to liberate this and liberate that. When you couldn't fight, you know, there is no way they can manage those. Well, that, that actually leads to my next question. This is something that Michelle pointed out to me. The World Bank is estimating that 55 percent of Ukrainians will be living in poverty by the end of next year as a result of the war. And the large number of displaced persons, 
compared with only two and a half percent before the start of the war. Uh, The Ukrainians seem to have all the weapons, all the missiles they need, but they don't have the economic ability to keep their country out of poverty. One of the things that that we just stopped talking about here in the United States is how corrupt Ukraine is. Year after year after year, the United Nations would rank Ukraine as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So what are your thoughts on this? Is is it going to be up to the likes of the United States, the European Union and NATO to keep Ukraine as a viable country? Are we going to have to are we going to have to rebuild the Ukrainian economy like uh, the, the Marshall Plan did for for Greece, Turkey and uh, and um, well, yeah, Greece and Turkey, I guess, was the Marshall Plan back in 1946 to 48. Well, the idea of that is the question becomes is what's in it for us as American citizens? Good question. When you are, yeah, when you are seeing this massive amount of money just going to Ukraine, knowing that it's not going to end up reaching its final destinations, it's no different than what's taking place right now. And your listeners need to truly grasp this. The weapons that's been sent to Ukraine since the beginning of the military operations by the Russians you know, they have not made their, uh, they have not reached their final destinations. Half of those weapons end up in a dark web being sold there. Uh, you know, it just makes you wonder yeah. how much money can we be just sending while Americans are, are suffering right here. American families, not all, of course, I'm not generalizing, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out when you step outside and see where the prices are. And, and Americans, we start to wonder. You know, how much can we give to uh, Second thing for the Ukraine itself, its economy, which already was on a shaky ground to begin with, and you add a, a war to, to that setting, what do you expect? You know, this is why Poland has been absorbing so many refugees to the point that Polish people now are getting a little bit uh, upset about, okay, wait a minute, why are we diverting our resources to deal with this refugee crisis? Yeah. Germany and France and England none of them is, 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 is stepping forward by saying, sure, have all the refi- Ukrainian refugees come over to England and Germany and France and all that. Because those countries themselves are dealing with the economic consequences, consequences of the sanctions that they have implemented. And nobody's talking about it on, on Capitol Hill right now. Everybody's happy just to cast their vote for more rockets and more uh, missiles and more tanks and things like that. Nobody's talking about the rebuilding of this country. And if you're, if Ukraine is going to be a viable country, it's going to have to have a viable and robust economy. And at 55% of the population projected to live uh, under the poverty level, that's not a viable country. No, it's not. And, and when you add now the military dimensions to this, uh, setting uh, or this equation, you can just see what the outcome is going to be. There is one thing that I would like just to uh, bring up to, to your listeners' attention, if I may, and this one has to do with the uh, talks between the U.S. and Russia regarding the START, the Strategic Arm Reduction Treaty. You know, that's one of the things that's been pushed to the side now, while this development of the usage of some advanced weapons or missile systems that's been used in Ukraine. Could this have to do anything with the lack of having those negotiations started? Because this treaty is going to expire in 2026. Yeah, good point. Only treaty. That's the only agreement, by the way, we do have with the Russians 
as of today regarding nuclear disarmament. Two of the ships that have left ports in Ukraine after months of being trapped there are going to Turkey carrying corn. One is going to England and one is going to Ireland. Others are headed to Italy and to China. None of these ships, David, that have been released so far are going to places like Yemen, Somalia, Ethiopia, or any of the other countries that are facing these catastrophic levels of hunger. The United Nations has described three of the shipments from Ukraine, those taking corn to Turkey and Europe, as life-saving grain shipments. Can you imagine life-saving grain shipments? President Zelensky told his counterpart from Botswana on Monday that Ukraine was ready to continue being the guarantor of world food security. But this grain that's been released has not so far gone to the countries where people are in the most dire need of receiving it. And most of the trapped grain is not food for humans. It's animal grade uh, corn and grain. It's animal feed, according to the Associated Press. What do you make of all this? Why have we been fed this story that people in Africa were going to die if these grain shipments didn't make their way out of uh, Ukraine? Well, that's the whole idea of, uh, uh, you know, inflating the stories per se, especially when you, you know, uh, I'm sure you know and understand how the PSYOPs work. I work just in the military. (laughs) It works in the civilian uh, setting as well. And this is one of them. And uh, so the people will be thinking in terms of all oh, Africans now is going to starve or, or people if they don't reach, if they don't have the grain delivered. As a matter of fact, I just find out, as a matter of fact, one of the boats was supposed to be going to Lebanon. Okay. And it did not reach this, its destination. So the owners of the, of the freight end up selling it to someone else. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because they're going to say, Wait a minute, you you know, if you are to deliver this one to location A, that there is a set date, there is a set time, and sort of people will be waiting on that kind of stuff. But if you're going to be playing politics with it, we're going to just revert and sell it to someone else who will be able to manage that process and so forth. So what they are saying versus what it is are two separate stories. Yes. Sadly, and I'll say it, sadly for some of us here in the United States, we don't have that kind of critical thinking. Uh, good point. Or, 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 or to filter uh, truth from fiction. So when we hear a story like this, all of a sudden we buy into it. That's the sad part about all this. Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we have a guest on the show, I don't know, weeks ago, a couple of months ago, who actually said that this starvation in uh, in Africa was not a result of any grain cutoff. It was a result of mismanagement on the part of these African leaders. I don't remember that. I mean, I did want to say, like, it's people people are going to die. They're just not going to die specifically because Ukrainian grain had been held up. People are going to die because it's too expensive. Right. This is the case that I think Dr. Richard Wolf made when he spoke with us and other people have made. There's not there's not a shortage. This is a cost issue. And anytime it's a cost issue, this is man made. Right. Yeah. No one has to starve because wheat is a little bit more expensive than it was last year or the year before. Right. This is a decision that's been made in the World Trade Organization. This is a decision that's been made by the the way countries by the countries that trade with each other already that 
you know, sorry, we can't, there's only certain circumstances under which we can share our grain with you and you have to be able to meet this price. So I don't know that I would say it's been mismanagement by these leaders so much as it's been, an, you know, an insistence on adhering to economic rules and letting the invisible hand of the market dictate human fate rather than, you know, having an ounce of, uh, of sympathy and human feeling. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Greece for a minute. This scandal in, in the papers today is being called the Greek Watergate in the Greek papers. It's become very, very important in just a, a quick few days to the point where people are beginning to consider the collapse of the Greek government. This would be a blow to the U.S. because the relationship between the U.S. and Greece's new democracy party is very, very close. The prime minister was just here a few weeks ago and he addressed a joint session of Congress. Uh, the new democracy party if if they were to fall apart, would likely be replaced by uh, a party called Syriza, which is a Euro-communist party. New Democracy defeated Syriza in 2019. That's all less of a big deal than the possibility that the Turks could capitalize on this political upheaval. The Turks are threatening Greek sovereignty in the Aegean. They're threatening to drill for oil in Greek and Cypriot waters. They're threatening to forcibly take Greek islands in violation of the Treaty of Lausanne. How do you think the Greeks can get past this and at the same time ensure that it doesn't happen again? Well, this one is a big, big blow to the uh, uh, government in Greece. As, as my, big one. They've already have, in, in addition to the tensions that's been escalating with Turkey, which now some sort of on hold, shall we say, after the meeting, I believe, if I, if my memory serves me well, it was a meeting on sideline back in 22, June 20, uh, 22nd NATO meeting, when the defense minister of Greece and the Turkish yes. defense met on the side, if I remember, because I was following that one back then. You're exactly right. Yeah, that was the issue, John. It's because it has to do now with Turkey, wants to ensure that Asian islands are not militarized. Right. It's because the concern for them, for them, meaning for Turkey, is that there are nine U.S. bases right now, as we speak, around the Greek islands. So yes. Turkey is concerned about that one. It's because the NATO or the U.S., whatever you want to call it, gave the uh, Turkish uh, uh, authorities or leadership that, oh, this one has to do with Russia. It has nothing to do with you. Turkey is not buying that argument because they understood and they're saying, no, no, we're going to have to step in forcefully or else. And that is one of the reasons for that. The second one, which is geopolitical, that is based on energy. As a matter of fact, there are, ma- uh, there are large quantity of liquefied natural gas underground in the Mediterranean. And that one, in my opinion, and I believe I talked about it about three or four years ago, is going to create geopolitical tensions between four countries. You look at Greece, Turkey, Lebanon, and Israel. Okay? Egypt might be pa- part of that. Maybe, maybe not. But those four, because what you're going to be seeing is the competition over who has the right to drill in whatever area? If they don't come to an agreement, that's going to lead to some tensions. Tensions can escalate given how uh, the Turkey and Greece 
tensions are already, as I said, escalating. It's just we don't hear much about it. But energy also is at the heart of these uh, tensions between Greece and, the, uh, and Turkey. And to Turkey, to Ankara right now, these tensions inside uh, Greece, it's a sort of uh, an opportunity for them to for sort of focus on the other geostrategic uh, issues that they need to be dealing with. Agreed. There's one other issue I wanted to raise with you, David, before we let you go. Uh, and it's kind of a crazy story. Polio has been found in the London sewer system. It's a live virus that's used in vaccines in South Asia and in Africa, different from the dead virus vaccine that most Western countries use. The British are now warning citizens that all children should be vaccinated immediately. Pol- uh, polio is an ongoing problem in Pakistan and Afghanistan, as well as some parts of Africa. Is this a public health crisis or is this just an anomaly? Uh, I will go with the latter, John. Mm. Uh, We all know how the story goes, because that was the whole idea in Pakistan when the campaign about uh, the vaccine against polio was. But we all know what was the really the true story behind that. (laughs) So it was just the idea of, no, I won't buy that argument, especially coming from the Brits. We all know how this uh, narrative goes. Uh, I mean, we are experiencing it right here in our own uh, the, the domestic market, shall we say. You know, when you hear about the monkeypox stuff and all that. Right. You know, I personally, and this is my personal opinion, I, I respect everybody's decision to do whatever based on what's good for him or her, as long as the government doesn't step in and start dictating to which direction we need to go. It's my choice to decide on the whatever that is. So this story about the polio in England, no, I won't buy it. David Walalu, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Walalu is an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the host of Geopolitics in Conflict on TYT. His latest book is The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we'll be back with our next guest. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're taking a look at how things are shaping up in the election that's coming up in Brazil in October. Joining us for this conversation is Natalia Urban. She's a Brazilian journalist at Brazil Wire. Natalia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. It's lovely again to be here. Thanks. So I I wanted to have this conversation because there had been some, um, I guess, surprising reporting on Lula's poll numbers in Brazil right now. A poll released the day before yesterday found that his lead against incumbent Jair Bolsonaro had dropped to seven points from 13 points last month and 14 points in May. There were other polls that still had him showing a double digit advantage, but they were kind of all on the same trajectory, right? One saw his advantage starting at 18 points. Um, Another saw that his lead had fallen from 14 points to 12 points. It's still a pretty sizable lead, right? If you're looking at 12 
percentage points, 18 percentage points. But interesting that potentially, if these polls are right, the trajectory seems to be downward. Uh, the election, as I mentioned, is in October. Uh, Bolsonaro and Lula only recently formally confirmed their campaigns, although, of course, it is no surprise that both were running. And so I wonder if you think there is actually uh, a political trend to pay attention to in Brazil right now, or if this is just, you know, pollsters bringing a little drama before the actual vote. No, this is actually a, a real issue. What I think it's most important for people to realize as, and this is also something that uh, people, some people have been talking with the Workers' Party is don't rest on your laurels. Um, it's still an election, still like an extremely uh, polarized country. And Bolsonaro has been turning all the dirty tricks that are in the book to be turned. Like he uh, simply uh, um, uh, instated uh, um, a benefit from the government that will be paid to people until December, saying that people need help now with inflation and etc. Bolsonaro also made a few moves to uh, uh, reduce the taxes around the fuel. So the fuel prices are uh, are still very high, higher than what they were with the Workers' Party, but they are like cheaper than they used to be a few months ago. And one of the things that is the most important is Bolsonaro is again starting the same atrocious fake news um, around Lula's uh, um, people and the Workers' Party, uh, using, of course, as a pawn his Christianity um, in contrast with like Lula more, uh, um, let's say, like multi-religion uh, 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 posture regarding the Brazilian society. So. Yesterday, we had the first lady of Brazil, Michele Bolsonaro, posting a picture of Lula with um, a high priestess of uh, Afro-Brazilian religion saying, look at them. They are like throwing, uh, they are selling the souls to the devil to get their oh. election. Yes, it's very criminal. Um, it's very racist. And um Remembering everybody that Brazil is not a religious state, so everybody has the freedom of having their own beliefs. And Bolsonaro has been catering to the most um, radicalized evangelical populations. So this you have like people, uh, the big uh, preachers and etc. all doing nonstop campaign for Bolsonaro and saying things like, Recently, the former minister of human rights in Brazil said that Lula was about to give people um, uh, school material, teaching them how to smoke crack. I'm not joking. So uh, they are. So it's like they are catering the most like uh, um, um, the lowest of the working class, the people with less education and especially the Christians, like scaring them on voting on Bolsonaro. Voting for me is like voting for the Brazilian family or whatever he wants to say. So, I mean, some of these efforts, right? You mentioned um, uh, increasing these welfare payments to Brazil's poorest, but only through the end of the year. Um, 
this is not really Bolsonaro's base, right? And so I wonder, you know, if you think these short-term measures are going to have any effect, and if this means that maybe, you know, this combined with um, this this shift in Lula's numbers means that maybe there is sort of a base shift here, and and what we will see in this election is a surprising changes in who is drawn to Bolsonaro and who is drawn to, to Lula. I would say that at the moment, the, the the people who will decide are basically the people, like I said, the evangelicals, because in the past, they used to vote for Lula. It's not a consensus among the evangelicals of like uh, of wanting that uh, Bolsonaro's hatred rhetoric as something that they want to embrace. But um, the major churches in Brazil, which is also an, uh, um, an issue like in the United States and other Latin American countries of like churches that uh, actually have uh, politicians that um, are multi-billion uh, uh, um, companies, basically, um, that are like a forming their own political opinions. So these people are the ones that uh, both candidates have to cater. Of course, Bolsonaro has the support of the bigger ones, but like Lula has to make the people from the church realize like, oh, you, it's okay for you to vote um, against uh, what your pastor, your preacher advise you because like you have to vote for you. You don't have to vote for what the church is saying that is the right for you. So um, I would say that uh, Lula is still uh, uh, the, fa- the, the favorite um, amongst um Minorities, uh, Afro-Brazilians mainly, uh, indigenous as well, uh, the the people in the favelas, um, the people who are like uh, uh, um, from the the lowest and incomes, but Bolsonaro has the Christian vote, and Brazil being the most Christian country in Latin America, it's a major issue. Talk to us about these um, ongoing and maybe growing fears that Bolsonaro is going to try to hold on to power, uh, whatever the results of this vote are. There was a take from The Guardian that I thought, uh, maybe I am overreacting to this, but I thought it was kind of odd. Uh, The Guardian says, hundreds of thousands signed pro-democracy manifesto amid fears the president will promote Trump-style insurrection against democracy. And I just thought it was a little bit funny that the Guardian is sort of suggesting that Brazil uh, needs to look to Donald Trump to find a model for uh, for having a coup, right? But, you know, uh, maybe this is just me being cynical because we have this tendency in the United States to decide that everything bad in our society and our political system is because of Trump and nothing predates him. And so I wonder what you make of these comparisons in Brazil, right? Brazil obviously is no stranger to dictatorship. It is obviously no stranger to coups. But maybe what the suggestion is here is that Bolsonaro is going to try to stay in power uh, without uh, the support of the military necessarily, which is what you need traditionally, but through some kind of civilian popular protest movement. And so I want to ask you, is that is that what the real fear here is? And, and how seriously should we take that? I don't want to agree with the Guardian because I have been saying that before them, <laughs> because we have to remember that Eduardo Bolsonaro was the only foreman um, that was around the Council of War of Trump uh, before uh, 
January 6th. He was there. He was invited to be there. Eduardo Bolsonaro is part of the movement. He's the representative of the movement of Steve Bannon in South America. So um, they have their own playbook. And yes, Bolsonaro is trying. This is something also we can talk again about the, the polling. Bolsonaro has been radicalizing more people. You know, like bringing more people into, oh, you have to fight for your country. You look what is happening in other countries in South America that they have like communists in power. And I was like, which countries? Like we don't have any communists in power in any country in Latin America. But he likes to say like in South America, sorry, he likes to say that they have. And that's why the countries are not going well financially, even though Brazil has a extremely conservative man in power and like 30 million people are hunger, but the other countries are the issue. But he has been trying to um, instaurate um, a, a, a certain aura of uh, fear and uh, um, radicalization of violence amongst his supporters and people who are like extremely anti communist, even though we know Lula is not a communist, but um, anti-leftist, let's put it this way, Um, because he thinks uh, that uh, true fear, and this is something, again, let's all watch September 7th, that is the Independence Day of Brazil, that is the day that Bolsonaro is saying that people will go to the streets to reclaim their country. And he tried something last year. It didn't work. It was a fiasco. It was pathetic. But still, this year, now Bolsonaro is more prone to violence. Like he keeps like instaurating a climate of like making people to wanting to act more violent towards defending their country. Um, and yes, uh, Brazil has a history of a uh, military dictatorship, but we have to remember that when Brazil had a military dictatorship, it was because the United States was supporting not just in Brazil, but in other countries in South America, like the Condor operation uh, to have those dictatorships. Nowadays, the United States government was very clear about not wanting the military involved in something because the coups nowadays, uh, the accepted coups that we are having in South America, like taking Bolivia as an example, they are all uh, coups for um, technicalities or like legal issues or, of course, the lawfare. So they are trying to find like ways to not to 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 modernize those schools because it's not acceptable for especially for a, a government that pretends to be so-called inclusive, progressive, whatever the United States likes to say they are nowadays to say, oh, we are defending democracy and you are supporting a country that is with the military in power. So this is not something that is acceptable anymore. So they were very clear about not wanting the military in Brazil involved in anything. So that's why Bolsonaro has been trying to instaurate that kind of like popular insurrection to see if he will get a hold of power that way, which I think it's going to be difficult. But my biggest fear is in that process, uh, innocent people will end up hurt.
um, especially people who are supporters of Lula, who are like uh, uh, um, activists from social movements, uh, indigenous people, and especially the Afro-Brazilians. We only have a couple minutes left, but I want to touch on lawfare. And it's used to obstruct uh, politicians because, of course, you know, if, if Lula wins, which still seems likely, I wonder what kind of internal opposition he's going to face and and whether, you know, he's going to be better able to counter politically motivated accusations of corruption, uh, you know, like we saw with Operation Car Wash or other lawfare tactics. Do you think that he's going to come in? having learned some lessons and be a little more resilient to these kinds of accusations? I think not just like him, but like the Brazilian uh, judicial system learned uh, their lesson. That's why yesterday the Brazilian judicial system convicted one of the prosecutors that uh, was against Lula should not just give back the money that uh, he used during the car wash operation, but also to be someone that cannot um, put himself out there to be a candidate for elections. He was kind of uh, like in Brazil, we say ficha suja. He doesn't have like a, a clean background. He has a criminal conviction now. So he had aspirations to go into politics and now he cannot go anymore because of the way he handled that car wash operation. So I would say the judicial system learned its lesson regarding that uh, uh, um, of going to those operations uh, that um, are doing like the the, um, kind of like learn. Believing in people who are already with their necks on the rope, like they need to find, yes, like they need to find like better ways to deal with corruption cases. And also we have to remember that even though Bolsonaro likes to brag that he's not involved in corruption, Bolsonaro uh, has like so many scandals with like basic things like a his sons and his family and his own money. Something that Lula, he wasn't, they weren't able uh, uh, to find anything on Lula, even regarding the, the, the penthouse, regarding his own money. Like they weren't able to find anything. So I think Lula always says to everybody that he can go to sleep at night soundly because he knows he is an honest man. But I would say that now he has a very smart uh, a team of lawyers of like uh, giving like legal counseling because, of course, we know everything can happen at this point. And especially with the climate in Latin America and South America with the United States losing their turf to people who are progressive and are pro-integration of South America without the United States. They will be a bit more desperate, especially Brazil being the biggest country of the region. Natalia Urban, I know our listeners can find your work at Brazil Wire. Is there anywhere else they should go to find out what you're doing? They can also follow me on Twitter um, at Urban Natalia, all together, no spaces. And also uh, they can always like follow me on social media because I'm always like posting stuff there, not just about Brazil, but about Latin American general. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure we will talk to you again before this election. We're going to take a quick break now and come back and talk about the new inflation numbers in the United States, talk about 
uh, why credit cards are so eager for new clients and get into some domestic politics. All of that coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's a happy day today at the White House now that the July Consumer Price Index has been released, showing that inflation has fallen from 9.5% to 8.5%. I'm joking, of course, but the White House is optimistic that the worst is behind us and that inflation will continue to fall as job growth accelerates and we get closer and closer to the midterm elections. And yesterday was a day of quiet primary elections in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Vermont, and has shown some still fascinating results. There's no doubt that when it comes time for the midterm elections, voters are going to have clear choices between conservative and progressive candidates, between those who want a continuation of Donald Trump's legacy and those who don't. We're joined by Steve Grumbind, Steve is founder and CEO of the nonprofits Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action and host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. He's also a leading activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. Welcome back, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me on. Oh, we love having you on, Steve. And, uh, you know, this is one of those perfect days where there's a good mix of economic news and political news. You're the perfect person. Let's start with inflation. Um, I've been very intrigued by the media reaction today to this drop in inflation. The government announced this morning that it had fallen to 8.5% for July. That's still pretty high, though, historically. Uh, But then I saw comparisons to other countries. It kind of made me laugh. One headline that I saw this morning was, you think 8% inflation is high? Try 80%. That was an article about the Turkish economy. But 8.5% inflation is still rough on a lot of Americans, especially when so many Americans are still earning minimum wage that hasn't been raised in many years um, or wages that keep them in poverty. So I guess my first question to you is, do you think we're headed in the right direction? Is this an anomaly or is inflation really beginning to come down? Well, we saw fuel prices go down. I'm not sure of all the reasons uh, that suddenly brought these forward. I mean, remember, they, they set these prices forward, right? So, you know, it, it, the, the, the oil production at the wholesale level, these things have been speculated on and procured. The contracts were written last year for this year kind of thing. Right. So these prices and stuff are what has, these are the retail prices and they have dropped. I mean, they've dropped significantly here in my own uh, hometown. I mean, we've, we've got in the order of uh, 50 cents drop in, in the cost of fuel. So I imagine that has had some that has had some impact on the overall inflation numbers. However, I, I think it's really important to note that while this is happening, the Fed is still actively hiking up interest rates. And hiking up interest rates is a monetarist approach to how you deal with inflation. They don't have any other tools at the Fed really to use than managing interest rates, which then in turn 
serves to kind of kill the economy and by extension to go with Larry Summers also kills jobs. So you've kind of got this weird, it's like a dichotomy, like two very ironic worlds trying to merge together here where on one hand, we're seeing an uptick in jobs, and I'll talk about that in a second, but we're also seeing the the desires of the you know, inflationistas at the Fed to try to create unemployment. This is standard. This is what they did during the Volcker era of the 70s during the OPEC crisis, and they figured they'll just forklift that whole strategy forward here today. Now, why is this a big deal? If you remember, not even a year ago, we were reading articles about the Great Resignation. We're reading articles about people checking out of the workforce altogether. Not, we're not just talking about people that are uh, involuntarily unemployed. We're talking about people that made a different decision in life. They either paid off some debt, they changed things, they bought a tiny house, whatever it is that they did, they did something different. They made decisions that were different. And so what you've seen, and this will play into some of the other stuff we may talk about through this conversation, is that they have literally created a situation where there's no money being spent into the economy. So therefore, it's putting the economy on the backs of people to get credit, to, to, to fill the void that federal spending once was filling to fill that back up with bank credit and, and credit card debt and other forms of debt to, to backfill the, the, the poverty of dirt, you know, money, the yeah. lack of money. And uh, I think that that right there is, is kind of playing into this as well. So people aren't necessarily going back to work because they want to, because they've been unemployed, desperate to go back to work. Many of these people are going back to work out of necessity because of the austerity baked into the economy. So, so to me, this is all a very, very bad thing. I mean, obviously, inflation going down, good thing, right? Sure. But I think everybody, to a fault, would say, I'd rather pay a little teeny bit more in prices than have a whole bunch of unemployed people running around, involuntarily unemployed people. Now, people choose to be unemployed, that's a different story. But involuntary, nah, that's a, that's, that's, uh, it's a cruel, blunt instrument used to try to discipline labor to bring about these conditions that will, quote unquote, bring down inflation. But I, I think it's important, and, and you, know, you can cut me off if you need to, but I want to make this point. Yeah, please do. There are different flavors of inflation, right? If you've got a supply chain issue, invest in attacking the supply chain issue. If you've got an issue of high gas prices, then address your high fuel prices. You know, maybe stop domestic exports of fuel. Maybe, you know, put price caps on Do whatever, right? But what, what do they do? They all, it's kind of like this weird sideways attack. You know, if we kill everyone's ability to make decisions for themselves, make their lives just a little bit more tenuous because the worker has too much power right now, and we don't like that. Well, now all of a sudden we can tame labor by literally creating the conditions that force them to do things that they probably wouldn't otherwise do if given a choice. And uh, you see a lot of really, really low wage jobs, poor jobs, garbage jobs, if you will, that people are having to pull two and three of to stay afloat now. Uh, if you watch some of the work Jordan Cheriton's done as he's gone into 
local communities, you see that all is not well out in the world. I mean, people are literally trying to figure out where they're going to live. Homelessness is horrible. So there's a lot of things that this exuberance about a slight dip in inflation is is really geared to hide and cover. Right. And um, and I think they did a number on that uh, yesterday by uh, rating Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago location as well. I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors heading into November. And um, I think that that's really, what is it that they're trying to distract us from? You know, this this absolute onslaught that I think we're going to sadly see from Republicans. I think the the rise of the Trumpists are going to take advantage of this, this exact situation that we're talking about right here with the inflation and the, the tepid response to it. And um, and they're gonna they're gonna capitalize on that. They're gonna use it, and they're gonna use Trump as a martyr, and and that'll be the story. <laughs> I, I suspect that you're right. I I have kind of a follow up question for you too. Do you expect the administration to be able to, or even willing to, do something about wages to help lift people out of poverty, or or do you think that in the in the interest of and I'm using air quotes here, fighting inflation, they're going to continue to try to keep wages down? You know what? If you if you just simply go by a standard MBA textbook, anything that causes costs to rise within a business are passed on to the consumer in terms of price hikes. So as it stands right now, we haven't taken on big business. We haven't addressed corporate practices. We haven't addressed the threshold between profit sharing going up to the executive versus sharing it amongst the workers who bring about that surplus. So I I think anything fundamental that is going to be changed here, even it's not going to happen from the White House. They, They believe fundamentally in free markets. They fundamentally believe in letting business dictate those terms. They fundamentally believe that government is there merely to protect them and, and, and to provide markets for them to, to do their bit. They don't believe their job is to really regulate. I don't know how this deregulation, you know, I guess we can look at Reagan, but I think this goes back further than Reagan. I think this was always the Milton Friedman school of thought that kind of fed uh, the Adam Sh- or you know the the shifts of the Peter shifts of the world Adam Sh- Peter shifts of the world and um, you know the entire Reagan revolution that kind of was carried forward by you know uh, Bill Clinton and W and Barack Obama quite frankly and you know we've seen it with Trump and now we see it with Biden I don't think that that's changing until we make a decision that it changes I think that you're going to just see this laissez-faire approach so everything that they do. This is the problem. This is why I said all that. Everything that they do is with the hope and prayer that the good graces of big business decide to take these measures and then say, okay, we will give back to the community. But that's not how they're wired to work. It's just simply not. You need regulatory uh, action. You need antitrust action. You need uh, to totally bust up the stranglehold patent laws have, and and on and on and on. These are ways that you bring down inflation. My guy, can you imagine the kind of inflation reduction we'd have if we simply limited the power that corporations use with patents? Just that alone would absolutely drop the bottom out of the price structure. We would we would have real low prices right there. That would be 
That would be truly momentous. <laughs> We're not going to see it, that <laughs> bottom line. We're not going to see it. Hey, Steve, can I ask you, I wanted to ask you kind of a, a wonky question, but it's something that caught my eye. And it's this um, decision by a major credit score provider, Vantage Score Solutions, not to factor medical debt into co- medical debts in collections into how it calculates credit scores. Uh, and it's not the first to do this. Uh, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, they had already decided they were going to exclude most medical collections debt from their scores. And so Vantage Score is just going a little further and saying we're not going to look at any medical debt in collections. And so, you know, part of this sounds good, right? The Vantage Score said, look, uh, these debts aren't good at predicting a person's likelihood of repaying other debts. And so this decision means that people with medical debt in collections could see their credit scores increase by uh, up to 20 points, which is good, I guess, if in the world right now you are trying to get a car loan or get a credit card with a better rate or get an apartment, right? Because renting an apartment means they have to look at your credit score. But Mm. it also, uh, I think, raises some concerning issues, which is how normalized this predation by the healthcare industry has become, right? That so many millions of people have medical debt in collections that we can't even treat it as an anomaly anymore, right? That seems pretty horrifying, right? Having having huge medical bills in collections is just normal now, so we'll ignore it. And the other thing that I, you know, remains troubling to me is just how keen some of these big banks are to get people to take out lines of credit. I think it was just last <laughs> week I, I noticed a story about banks uh, spending a whole bunch on marketing their credit cards to people. They are, of course, not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. And so, you know, I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on this, right? Your thoughts on what it means to have these credit scores deciding that they're just going to not even pay attention to this medical debt that more and more Americans are carrying around. And uh, and just why all of these companies seem so eager to pave the way for Americans to get access to more and more credit. Boy, oh boy, you are more insightful than I think you realize. So if you think about, you know, this is this is an ongoing mantra that every time you have me on your show, you'll hear me talk about. Neoliberalism literally depletes the public space and enhances the private space. When the private space is fully bloated and completely saturated, they go and they start peeling away new bits of the public space to create new markets that they predate upon. Well, what is it that a, uh, a credit card company needs to do? I mean, the bottom line is, let's say they give you $50 of credit, but they know they're going to get $75 back for getting you to take out that $50 purchase. All right. To them, if they make $51, they've, they've won because they haven't done anything. They literally haven't done anything. They've literally, it, it's no big deal. So they roll the numbers and they figure that the amount of people that will actually follow through good on their debt makes it a worthwhile venture to allow people who are already over their heads in debt have access to even more debt. This is a different play on what they did in the housing market back in the the, uh, great financial crisis that we went through in 08 and 09. And it's very similar tactic. So what they've done is they realize that 
if the federal government is going to cut down and reduce the deficit, which is all the rage right now with this Inflation Reduction Act, they're touting their 300 and some odd billion dollars in uh, deficit reduction. This is a big deal. So deficit reduction really nets out to we've taken more money out of the economy through taxation and lower spending than we've put back into it. And so they recognize that. And that means they've got to backfill the bathtub of the economy with something. And it's either going to be in terms of us exporting things. Well, we know that we're a net importing nation, so that's not going to really be the deal. So it leaves us with private credit. Well, if you're already maxed out because your medical debt is killing you, that's a lot of money that these credit card companies are leaving on the table for people that they don't really care necessarily if all of them pay their debt back. They just care that enough of them do it to push them over the edge to keep them growing because capitalism desires growth. It needs to show more growth. If you read, there's a book by uh, Brett Scott, the great author uh, from uh, South African author, writes out of England. Uh, he wrote a book here recently called Cloud Money. Please get it. It's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And he talks about the convergence of payment systems like all these different, um, you know, Paycor, PayPal, Cash App, all these different, you know, fintech uh, type deals that provide access to credit cards. And this is all part of a larger network of people. They don't even have many people working for them. They're largely a server farm with an AI voice that says, hi, would you like to talk to Tina? And all of a sudden, some computer named Tina starts talking to you or Biff or Billy or Joey or whoever. And, and, and they don't have anybody there, but they're skimming money off of each transaction. And so as they continue to spread this out through fintech, through like Facebook pay and all these different pays, they're all getting a piece of the action. This is a new industry, a burgeon. It's not new, but it's a burgeoning one. And it's all part of this credit expansion, knowing full well that the government itself is going to re retrench, pull back, go into deficit reduction mode. And, uh, you know, for those folks that don't understand, deficit reduction is austerity and austerity is murder. And, uh, you know, this is going to hurt the people that are least capable of dealing with it. But they're, they're predating once again that what they're doing is it, on one hand, it sounds good because when you're hurting and you're drowning and all of a sudden you realize the back tire on your car is bald and it's about to blow. And if you don't get that tire replaced. You're going to have a blowout. You can't get to work, so but you don't have enough money. So now all of a sudden you've got access to credit and you can get a new tire. That's wonderful. These are the times that credit should be there, right? But what they're doing is really just – it's just more of the same retrenchment and ex credit expansion that you expect during these times. This is a business model, and it is straight out of the neoliberal playbook. So – I think we should get rid of all the credit agencies, period. I think it should be illegal for apartment uh, renters to have to give their credit score or anything else. I, I think all these things really, really are detrimental to society. So I come at it from an entirely farther perspective than where we're at. But just looking at it for where it is, I, I think it's it's pretty clear that this is predatory. And I think you nailed it uh, when you when you gave your your uh, explanation. That book looks really good, by the way. I'm going to go, I'm going to go check that out. 
Brett Scott is one of my heroes. There's two people in the world that I, I mean, there's a lot of people I value and respect and revere, but there's two people in particular that I think are writing game changing materials right here, right now that I think everybody should get behind. Number one is Brett Scott in terms of the fintech side, but also Jason Hickel, who's looking at degrowth and global eco-socialism. Two guys that are really, really powerful. I've had both of them on the Macro and Cheese podcast. In fact, this uh, Saturday's uh, podcast will be with Jason Hickel as well. Just a guy that every time he speaks, everything that comes out of his mouth, I'm just nodding. And that doesn't happen very often. So great, great guy. I wanted to ask you about uh, some of these primaries yesterday. Wisconsin Republicans nominated a pro-Trump election-denying real estate billionaire for governor. The Democrats nominated the progressive black lieutenant governor for the U.S. Senate seat. Uh, there are real ideological choices uh, that that are going to be presented to voters in Wisconsin in November. In Minnesota, get this, Representative Ilhan Omar barely won by the skin of her teeth, 50 to 48, against a pro-police conservative Democrat. And again, there was a real ideological choice in that race. It seems like Democrats and Republicans are farther and farther apart ideologically. What do you think that means for purple states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and others as we get closer to the midterms? Well, I'm glad you said that. Um, I live in one of those purple states, Pennsylvania, to be exact. And we have a clown named Doug Mastriano who's running for governor. Right. These are the MAGAs. These are the, the folks that are literally openly campaigning against woke culture. They're not. When I say this, I, I'm not talking about they're fighting the other candidate. They're literally talking about the people. They're, they're like talking about the people being bad, the people that live in their district. They're not even it's naked hatred. OK, so. I don't see a world of difference on the economic front with these two groups. I mean, they're both solidly neoliberal, but you nailed that there's an ideological proclivity. I have a very good friend who was my former best man at my first wedding, whose wife just said, hey, I've had enough of this woke culture. I'm moving to Tennessee. And she literally picked up and left with her kid and went to Tennessee, waiting for him to follow if he chooses because they just want to be away from woke culture. This woke thing is going to penetrate at the school board meetings. It's going to penetrate at your local grocery store. It's going to be everywhere you go at the football games, your kids' high school games, whatever. This is becoming citizen against citizen. And it's really ugly. I mean, like, you know, it used to be that you would sit there in a room with people. And you knew that everybody was different and you just said, ah, we're just not going to talk about those things. And you just sort of had a good time watching the ball game or doing whatever. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's getting different, right? It really is. So I think that you watch every time these partisans get excited about doing what they did in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, look, I am no Trump supporter. I think the man's a criminal even before he became president, Right. I think it's just a garbage human being. But I think all these suckers are garbage human beings. And I look at their motives and I look at what they stand for. And, and it's very, very hard to see any of them taking the quote unquote moral high ground 
as you see the corruption just oozing all over them, right? And and so when one corrupt person starts talking about the corruption of another corrupt person, it's very hard to take it seriously. So what does it do? It nets out to my team versus your team, and everything else is irrelevant. So I really see very, very negative times coming up, especially, you know, I, I don't take electoral politics nearly as seriously as some do. I, I see it largely as organized community theater. Right. Uh, but in reality, let's just suggest that even if it is theater, just like sitcoms have an impact over our conversations in the lunchroom, these political situations have direct impact on how we see our next door neighbors and, and how we treat the kids in school and how we look at one another. And I, and I think this is really, really very, very dark times for society um, beyond just the, the economic space. I think they're creating a, a scenario where we're left with a bunch of people that are totally armed to the gills and are angry as hell some of it legitimate. I mean, because let's be fair, the Democrats create new fascists every day. They do something stupid. And and the flip side is, is that the Republicans have a very simple job. Our job is to repeal anything that sounds woke. Our job is to literally stand pat for the way it used to be, whatever that is. And so it's a pretty easy thing to defend. They're not really trying to change anything. They're just trying to keep whites at the top of the food chain. And, um, and really, not just whites, but moneyed interest at the top of the food chain to to keep the status quo. And Joe Biden is the perfect president for them, ironically. Uh, but the difference is you can see this. And, and I think this kind of wraps up all that we've talked about is that it's not the finance. They, they all see the same stuff, basically. It really comes down to the social impact. And that's how they divide us is through the, the social spaces that you know, my my rights, my special needs, my this, my that, and all of which are valid things to concern ourselves with, but they're using them as a means of balkanizing us against each other and shattering any sense of class uh, unity, class struggle, class anything. Um, and, and, and it is really, really going to have deleterious effects on society long term, long, long term, way longer than just this moment. Vermont, of all places, had a fascinating race yesterday. Nobody's paid any attention to Vermont in this electoral season. An anti-war solar energy worker and Iraq war veteran in Vermont won the Republican nomination for the U.S. House. He's not a Republican. He's an independent. He said he ran as a Republican because he wanted to upend a broken system that gives voters no choices. And he's considering now declining the nomination, but he doesn't want the Republican Party to pick his replacement. It seems to me, and I think this is just one example, that the country is ready for third parties, maybe several different third parties. Uh, People are upset with the Republicans. They're equally upset with the Democrats. Uh, More people identify as independents than at any other time in American history. What do you think? Do you think that what we're seeing could lead to a change, a real change in electoral politics? Or is this one of these cyclical things that we go through every once in a while? You know, I think we're always 
mentally and emotionally ready for a third party. I think there's always been third party, fourth party um, hunger. And going back to the time of Lincoln, I mean, there's been very few insurgent parties that have actually come out of this. I mean, I think the Whig Party and and uh, really Lincoln was the last That's time right. anything like this really happened. That's exactly right. So if you think about the, the lay of the land, nothing's fundamentally changed there either, right? You still require, sadly, Democrats and Republicans to pass laws that allow various things to occur. And what have we seen the last several elections? We've seen Democrats literally go to the ends of the earth to block Green Party candidates, not, not so much Republicans fighting off libertarians, but definitely Democrats fighting off Greens and the like. And, and I, you know, I, I never missed the opportunity to call Addie Barkin out. He has a tweet out there. All you got to do is search him cheering on the fact that the Democrats kept the Greens off the ballot. Literally, this is the level of celebration they have. So the idea that Democrats are going to suddenly lay down their weapons and say, yes, we want to have ranked choice voting. Yes, we want to do this. I, I think you've got to understand that we may be ready for it, but you've got to have laws on the books. And there's only 20 some states that even have the ability to do a referendum or, or any of these kind of line item things. OK, we, we don't have 50 states that can do this. So it's a great idea. I've, I've been very much supportive of various third party efforts throughout. I'm at the point there now where I have watched the third parties know the truth of something, but for personal reasons or whatever, decide to kind of do something really boneheaded and stupid. And one of them in particular, I won't even mention the party because I don't want to get into sure. pink, you know, poop flinging. But when you understand MMT and the things that I've talked about, there's absolutely nothing I've talked about. Anybody hears me talking that says, oh, that guy, he's pro-capitalist. They're full Full of poopy pee. Sorry, um, I, I self-censored there, guys. Anyway, um, but they're they're not they're not living in reality. They're yeah. not telling the truth. And, and so, to me, I, I say, look, the reason why Democrats, not the people elected, but the the rank and file, aren't able to ask for bigger and better and real change because they don't understand that real change is even possible. Okay. When the third party starts slipping into that realm as well and create the fact that, yeah, we're angry at those guys. Those guys are bad. Yeah, we all know that, right? They stink. But what are you offering that's different? It doesn't matter to hear a bunch of policies because everybody's got great ideas. It's not a matter of great ideas. Can you make them happen? Yeah, that's right. And and to me, this is where third party politics is is kind of a dead end at this moment for me anyway. I see us needing to be more Occupy Wall Street and maybe out of an OWS 2.0, a party comes out with street cred from organizing the people for all these independents. It's amazing how few of them are actually willing to roll up their sleeves and be a part of the dirty work that it takes to, to build institutions, parallel institutions. Everybody's caught up in whatever they're going to binge watch on Netflix. Yeah. They're not willing to lay it on the line. And I'm telling you, this is a guy who's been actively trying for a long time. And I admit that maybe I'm just not the right guy for those kinds of things. Maybe it's somebody else and that's fine. But I have not seen anyone 
that has that understanding. They get caught up in the weeds and silly stuff, things that are so niche and fringe. The uh, 2016 Libertarian Party convention, for example, where one guy went up to give a speech and during the course of the speech took off all of his clothes until he was standing there butt naked and had to be taken out by the police. I mean, that's why so many, that's one of the reasons why so many Americans don't take third parties uh, terribly seriously. We're going to have to leave it there as we're out of time. We were joined by Steve Grumbine. Steve, thanks for joining us. Steve is the founder and the CEO of the nonprofits Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action and host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. Excuse me. He's also a leading activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. You're listening to Political Misfits. Right here on Radio Sputnik, we're going to take a short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have um, what might be a bit of an anomaly for the show. We have maybe some good news about housing, or at least uh, some, some solutions that might be working in some cases, which, hey, I will take that as good news. Joining us for this conversation is Ron Kluwer. He's Illinois market president of Gorman and Company, and he's an affordable housing activist. Ron, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Michelle. So I saw this as a hopeful story uh, about housing in the United States. Uh, This comes from Vox. It's from about a week ago. And it says that state and local governments might hold a solution to, or at least the, the possibility of alleviating, Um, our housing crisis. I think this is something that you have actually spoken about on the show before, and so I wanted to get into some of these examples here. Um, This particular story says, you know, public housing had uh, sometime a couple decades past became the purview of the federal government, but it really doesn't have to be that way, and that state and local governments are finding that they can get money allocated to create affordable housing. Uh, The story cites successful efforts in Rhode Island, Colorado, Hawaii, and Montgomery County, Maryland, where I grew up, to allocate funding for mostly mixed income housing projects. And that, you know, they are having success getting these laws passed, getting these funds allocated and getting these projects rolling. And so I have some questions about some similarities between the states and counties that I just listed Uh, that get to the question of how replicable some of these programs might be across the entirety of the United States. Um, But I first wanted to get your thoughts on some of the projects the story mentions and and about the idea of states as public developers, right? Does this seem like a possible way out of this housing crisis we are stuck in? So on the surface, I'm going to say it's a positive article. Um, I think when we dive into some of the examples that are out there, I, you know, I have some significant concerns that this um, is kind of the, the solution or panacea to our, our housing, affordable housing crisis. I think a couple things to think about, um, you know, HUD has been, Department of Housing and Urban Development has been kind of the, the champion of public housing over the years. 
And there's, you know, there's been a lot of blame directed at HUD for the, you know, what many call the uh, failed public housing model. However, um, I think states have an ownership role in that conversation as well, because as it stands right now, every state has its own public housing regulations. And so while HUD may have been the primary funder, the way in which housing was developed, the locations where it was developed, et cetera, was all largely determined by state law, as was, you know, leadership models for public housing agencies, et cetera. So, I mean, knowing that and um, really kind of diving into a few of the examples, like the Colorado example is um, one, you know, what we're seeing is in the proposed structure in Colorado, the state would contract with a private developer to build the project under what's called a turnkey approach, meaning start to finish, they would they would take the project on, um, design it, build it, uh, you know, get it in a position where it could be leased up possibly, and then surrender it over to government to operate long term. And that to me. Um, again, sounds like maybe it could work, but when you look at some of the structure under that, you've got a private developer and, you know, I'll admit, um, that's my day job, right? Being an affordable housing developer, but in a turnkey situation, the way the legislation currently reads is the private developer would make all the decisions on how that development is going to be built, designed, et cetera. And the state really would buy from the private developer this deal at the end. And so the state then is on the hook for all the guarantees the private developer normally would have to ensure. And so, you know, the state could wind up assuming deals that maybe don't meet market needs, et cetera. And I, and I think that to me is, is part of the challenge. Um, we've talked often about housing being a local market in, you know, in many in every city, right? It's not a statewide market per se. It's not a national market. It's location by location. And so putting states in a position where they're looking for kind of a one-size model that's going to work across the state could also be concerning. So on the surface, again, looks looks like it could be a solution. I think there are other solutions out there that roles state can play um, because the the expertise is there. The supportive models are there. The evidence-based models are there. The challenge to solving the current crisis is really resources. And now we're creating resources, a model that's, you know, in essence, not been proven or tested. What are, what are going to be the results of that? Open to change all the time. I am, honestly. But let's, let's talk through those and let's maybe get some of the experts in the room on housing before we jump into legislation and throwing money at a problem. So the, the other thing that jumped out at me is that, you know, this collection of states and localities that are able to do it. It's Colorado, Rhode Island, Hawaii, and Montgomery County. Montgomery County is one of the wealthiest counties in the, in the country. It is a 19th wealthiest out of more than 3,000, according to, I think, 2019 data. So... These are places that have some income to throw around. And to me, another issue is, you know, when you have states and counties take over federal responsibilities, you are talking about entities that have much more limited funding. And so while some of these projects might be feasible, 
in Montgomery County or Hawaii or Colorado. They might not work in Mississippi or West Virginia or Kentucky. And if you start to say, well, hey, yeah, states can handle this better. Let's just kick it back to them. You you know, are dealing, you, you know, you're putting this problem in the hands of entities that have much more limited funding options than the federal government does. And so I wonder if this is one of the reservations that you had also. It is actually, um, because it's not going to be something that can be rec- replicated across all 50 states or territories in our in our nation. To your point exactly, those that are wealthy or have access to resources are going to be able to execute something and honestly afford to maybe make some mistakes that you know, other states are not going to even be able to venture in and stick a toe in the water of considering a public model. So I, I, I don't think it's an equitable approach, but I, I think, you know, what we're seeing is high net worth, high income uh, states and communities looking at a solution. And, you know, Colorado, I hold up all the time as an amazing state doing amazing work in the affordable space. They've got leadership that says, you know, we need you know, this many units in our state, we're going to support that. And again, it's not that the the knowledge isn't there, the capacity isn't there. It's just that fully the resources aren't there. And this is with Colorado putting way more resources on the table than other states already are. And so if we start to steer those resources to an untested model, or at least something that, you know, is a little bit different version of the old public housing model, are we going to get a product that is built and even, you know, great developer, great project, looks amazing at the front side? Are you going to have the wherewithal to get that thing to stay that way over the life of the development? Because that's where public housing at the federal level went wrong. You know, all of a sudden we built all this housing and then we didn't get any money to maintain it. And that, that's the other concern. Yeah, and I think when you are a state, you are a lot more you know, you, you can't print money, right? You can't, you have, you have a lot more constraints on what you're able to fund. And so you maybe set yourself up for not being able to maintain some of these uh, projects, even if you are able to build them. Is there a way that the federal government, you know, could support some of these actions to make them a little bit more robust, I guess? You know, potentially, you know, I, I think the continued expansion of the voucher program is a way in which that can happen. Because that's what's really one of you know one of the challenges is building uh, these low-income housing tax credit deals or other publicly funded deals um, through a public-private partnership. You know, when you build them on the front side, you you know you get the subsidy, so to speak, on the front side. You have to hold the rents incredibly low to be affordable, right? That's the whole point. And then the amount of affordability, the you know the level at which you're going to reduce the rent is all subject to a deal-by-deal basis. I think some of the previous conversations we've had where, you know, maybe we talk about zoning requirements, maybe we say every multifamily property or single-family subdivision needs to have X number of units of affordable. Those are are street-level fights happening in communities and often getting lost because of NIMBYism. Maybe the federal government has a role in helping localities address those issues because then you wind up with affordable housing most where it's needed and part of a regulatory um, option, so to speak. I'm kind of curious about, and I don't really understand very well the, the interaction between like a, a private developer and a government entity when it comes to this kind of thing. 
And so I wonder if it's, is, is the obstacle just uh, nimbyism or is the obstacle, you know, having developers who really are, are just going to want to build housing projects that are going to be for the people who can pay the absolute most for them? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we definitely have market rate developers out there who meet the high-end needs. You know, we see them in, in every city, right? The market is always going to take care of, um, or at least mostly going to take care of those needs when there's a profit potential, right? The ones where the profit's better, the demand is better, those are going to rise to the top. The affordable side of that is where we, you know, we especially get crunched. But in these public-private partnerships, the developer steps in works with a state or federal or local entity and says, you know, this is what we're proposing. Um, you may get some uh, affordable housing tax credits that go with that. There may be some other state or, or local or federal funds that come into the project. Those developments, you know, largely have been working for the last 15, 20 years. The challenge, again, is limited resources. And so I also think that the challenge is, public perception that the private side is making money and the government side is not, um, there's ways that you could improve those situations and still provide a high-quality housing option across all levels of affordability through a public-private partnership. You know, I, I think the public model has shown it's, it's failed at the federal level. And I think recognizing that the state had a role in it, too, because they created the state regulations around public housing. I think that just gives me some pause for concern on creating a, a hope for a project or projects in those you know, highest income states that maybe may not deliver on the, you know, on the, on the outcomes that are anticipated. So I think, you know, let, let's, uh, you know, let's as states or as localities have these conversations with those developers you know are creating a pipeline and a portfolio of affordable housing projects that work, that meet the needs or exceed the needs of every community they're in partnership with, and figure out what are the components of those that best need to be replicated to expand affordable housing. I was going to say, I, I wonder if a, a problem that is is going to come along to confound this or, or compound this is that um, when we talk about, I mean, we've talked before about what is affordable housing, right? What is the definition of affordable? Who can actually afford this affordable housing? But also when you look at the housing market, you look the, at the trajectory it's on, you look at the state of inflation, you look at the state of salaries and you go like, we're not only in a bad situation, it's situation right now when it comes to public housing and affordable public housing, but we have to anticipate that demand is going to get much higher, maybe very quickly. And I wonder if this is something that you think people should be paying more attention to, that uh, it, it seems very likely demand for uh, affordable housing, like rent-controlled housing, is going to be much higher than it has been in the past. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I think um, it was interesting. I was in a, in a meeting recently, a, a federal meeting um, with uh, elected officials, you know, our, our congressional leaders in it, and listening to some of the conversations around affordable housing and access to affordable housing. And you, you know, you look at where we stand as a nation right now, more than 7 million, uh, 7 million units of affordable housing short, right? 
when there was a time when we were only 300,000 units short, you know, 30 years ago. And so, you know, what, what happened? Well, what happened is, you know, kind of a cutoff of the pipeline of the resources necessary to keep up with demand, but also, you know, shrinking incomes, uh, more struggles in economy and transition of, of economies within communities where the, the human capital hasn't been trained or been able to make that transition to this, you know, new world of work, whatever it may be. And, and so that's where, you know, that's where we need to focus attention on is ensuring that when our economy changes, we're helping our workforce change with it. And that when, you know, when our residents across the nation are in need of, of appropriately paying, you know, jobs that, that pay livable wages, et cetera, that that is happening as well. I mean, it, it's not just the housing side of it. It's the economic and the income side where we're seeing also pressure. So I want to ask you about one line from this story that jumped out at me. Uh, it notes that in 2020, Rhode Island ranked near the bottom among U.S. states in terms of building new housing units. And while an early 1990s law already required every Rhode Island city and town to have at least 10 percent of its housing be affordable to low and moderate income households, only six of 39 municipalities actually met that target in 2020, right? Like three decades on from when this law was passed. And so I wonder, I wonder how we end up in that situation where you have these laws uh, mandating that there should be, you know, 10% of all municipalities' housing should be affordable to low to moderate incomes, and yet apparently no enforcement, right? Because it does seem to me, I don't know, to me it raises the... Um, the question of whether a government should actually just do these things instead of attempting to regulate them out of private partnerships, if that makes any sense. And so I wanted to ask why why you think laws like these have failed to, um, at least in this case, you know, achieve their desired goals. Sure. So this answer could get me in trouble, but, you know, I've always shared my position. I think the challenge is, you know, it's great that, you know, this is one of those inclusionary zoning ordinances that, you know, we've talked about in the past in, in a sense, right? So what happens is, you know, I come in, I propose this development on this parcel of land. All the neighbors get up in arms and say, oh, I don't want those affordable people living next to me. And and then, you know, you got political will stepping in that has to, you know, city council perhaps or a county board that needs to make the decision. Well, they want to get reelected. So, you know, when nimbyism rears its ugly head, and they realize that these are their neighbors, their constituents, and their voters, then, you know, the developer comes back and says, listen, I don't want to do this affordable either. It's too difficult, costs too much money, it's too hard. The neighbors clearly hate it. Why are you pushing us to do this? I want a waiver. And then government, you know, is like, okay, we'll give you a waiver. And it happens. That's the realistic side of it. And so, you know, thinking about that, you know, so now we're going to now we're saying states want to take a role in creating public housing. Well, the perception of public housing across the nation is already significantly worse than affordable housing, right? So, you know, what happens when they, you know we say, yeah, we're going to create these publicly funded and and developed and operated housing developments, and the community says, oh heck, you're not, not in my backyard. Like, do we all of a sudden, you know, do we have the political will at the state level? And then what's happening now at the local level for that support? 
I can't see that that's going to be any better than it was historically. That's that's why you don't see the development happening at this point. And there's really no support, you know, to do that. I, I think a well a well experienced and strong affordable developer will take on that fight in the community and say, no, this is needed. Those folks that you don't want living next to you, they're the server at the restaurant you go at. You love him or her when they're bringing you your dinner and you tip them great. But then now when it comes to, oh, they should have a good place to live, not my backyard. I don't want that. Like that's, that, that's not the same message, right? You're sending to mm-hmm. individuals. So it, it, it's, it, there's got to be public strength um, at addressing affordable housing. And it can't back down when there are things like an inclusionary zoning ordinance. And you can't give waivers from that because that's exactly what's happened. And I mean, the irony might be that uh, there will be a lot more support for that when a lot more people need this affordable housing, right? Because they're they're going to need, I I suppose you could call it artificially affordable housing because they're being paid artificially low wages. We will have to keep watching this. Ron Kluwer, you're an affordable housing advocate. I always appreciate you coming on the show and walking us through these issues. Thank you so much. No worries. Have a great day. Thank you. We've got five minutes left. Yeah, where'd the time go? I know, right? Well, it's when you're trying to figure out the the question of affordable housing and the housing (laughs) crisis in the U.S. There's a lot to get into. We do have a couple of uh, headlines here. One I dropped in, but I see yours just says, John Bolton murder plot Iranian man charged. What is this? The federal government today charged an Iranian national whom they claim is an officer in the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, in a plot to assassinate John Bolton. Uh, this Iranian man allegedly approached um, an American uh, and offered him $300,000 to kill John Bolton. He said that mm-hmm. if he was successful in killing Bolton, they would give him another million for a bigger hit that they would discuss after Bolton was dead. The, this mm-hmm. American immediately went to the FBI and reported the contact. Uh, the FBI set up a sting. And uh, this Iranian IRGC person was charged today with uh, with attempted murder. I'm surprised it wasn't an FBI agent from the start. So you're telling me this this random well, American who was approached <laughs> to do the hit. Yeah, I mean that's normally the case, right? It's it's the FBI setting up these uh, these so called stings. We we see it time after time after time. This Iranian uh, is a, a man by the name of Shahram Pursafi. Uh, and he's an Iranian citizen, an Iranian national. Uh, and uh, yeah, it says here uh, he he was sent here in November 2021 to uh, affect the assassination of John Bolton. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. John Bolton must be feeling pretty important right now. You know, it's funny, too, Michelle, because I see John Bolton walking uh, up and down K Street every once in a while. He must have an office here within a block or two of the studio. Cause I see him with some do regularity. You, yeah. Do you stick your foot out and trip? <laughs> I know. Right. I wanted to give him a shove the other day. No, I, I, uh, I'm on my best behavior. I have enough problems, but, uh, it's not like he's hard to find. He's right here. Uh, Hey, I have another headline to, uh, to turn stomachs. Guess who might be getting into the social media game following the great success uh, of truth social. Of yeah, course. Just uh, great. Did you see, it's Elon Musk. Elon and it's probably Musk. not true. It's probably not true. Well, he cashed uh, out $4.6 billion in uh, Tesla stock yesterday, so he's flush with cash right now. 
Yeah, he was saying he was trying to avoid a fire sale in case he is actually forced to buy Twitter, which is what Twitter is attempting to do in a Delaware court right now. Um, yeah, he was he was asked uh, if he doesn't buy Twitter, what his future with social media will be. And he sort of teased this idea that he's going to start his own social media platform, uh, you know, like we need another one. Right. Yeah, Have you been on exactly. social lately, John? I, Have I you taken a look at it? You know what? It takes all my free time to just manage uh, Twitter and Facebook. I, I just can't do another one. <laughs> all of your free time. <laughs> That's so much of it. Yeah. I, I can't. No. Um, I am hoping tomorrow we had some headlines today that we didn't get to about uh, Europe's ongoing energy crisis and uh, the UK actually planning for blackouts in the winter. And so uh, what we are hoping to do tomorrow is to talk to one of our European politics and energy experts about that. Uh, we also have uh, uh, not the island that separated from the Eurozone, but Europe itself uh, already implementing uh, energy restrictions, turning off lights, at, at monuments and taking other steps. But you know, it remains to be seen how far they can go and just how much energy they can stop yep. consuming before it really starts to upend people's lives. So that's right. there's a conversation we're hoping to bring to you tomorrow. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. I want to say thanks to all of our guests as usual and thanks to our engineers and producers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 